Well, I think we would all agree, and we're experiencing that we're living in a time when trust in people's word is at an all-time low, trust in our institutions are at an all-time low, media, politicians, medical professionals, even the church is perceived to be untrustworthy. And one of the most important markers of trust is how our promises that we make are kept or broken. Nowhere is this seen more vividly in the campaign promise of campaign promises of our political leaders uh, from both parties. Here's a couple of examples. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson took office after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And running for re-election, Johnson uh, painted his opponent as a war hawk, and he promised that we, quote, we are not about to send American boys 9 or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. The result is actually Johnson sent combat troops to Vietnam and escalated the war many times. Fast forward to 1988. In his acceptance speech at the 1988 Republican National Convention, uh, George H.W. Bush made the famous praise, read my lips, no new taxes. Now, the Bush administration got into uh, uh, difficulties with the recession and the deficit, etc., and we all know how that played out. He ended up having to break his promise and put new taxes into in effect that November. Regardless of where you stand politically, when promises are broken, it's not just words. People's real lives are affected, and human beings often pay the price for our broken promises. They can be economic, they can be war and peace, they could be related to justice. But for many of us, broken promises are much more personal, much more painful. Many of us have suffered from promises that were not kept, from parents, from spouses, from friends, and our lives have been forever changed And today, I want to share from Scripture how God, as we've been singing all morning, God is a promise keeper. God is true to His character, and He is faithful to His Word. And because God is faithful to His promises, we have been adopted into His eternal family. The big idea from this text today is we become the people of God through trusting in the promises of God. We're continuing today in our series in Galatians, and I'll be picking up in chapter 3, verse 15, and I want to uh, pick up the baton from where Pastor Carroll took us last week, where he took us into a deeper understanding that we are justified by faith alone. And in this passage, Paul is continuing his argument against the works of the law, specifically that no one is justified. Pastor Carroll pointed out that no one is put into right relationship by keeping the law, but he goes much further in in this passage, the previous passage from last week, where he says, not only are you not justified, but you're under a curse. Paul then contrasts the radical difference between the works of the law and faith and explains that the results of those, the results of those who rely on the works of the law fall under a curse. And here from last week, Galatians 3.13, another uh, aspect of the gospel comes into view and how Jesus in His sacrificial death took on and became a curse 
in our place, specifically the curse that is referenced at the end of Deuteronomy 27. Verse 13, Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And verse 14 ends by introducing the concept of promise, specifically there the concept of, or the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see today in Galatians, uh, starting in verse 15, that the promises of God to Abraham are vital for the Galatian church in two important ways. Number one, to withstand the attempts by Jewish Christians to submit them to the law. And number two, to understand who they are as people of God that is rooted in ancient promises. The Galatian church and New Life Church are part of God's family because of this first point, God's unbreakable promise. And Paul is continuing the argument that he made in the beginning of chapter 3 that the promises are received by faith. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul here is using the the everyday example of, of a will, of, of a, a last will and testament to make a simple and powerful point in how that wills, uh, man-made contracts cannot be abolished, they cannot be changed once the, the testator, that, that's the person who actually makes the will, once, they, once they've enacted the will, that it can't be changed once they die. Now, we've all heard of stories how through horrific twists and turns of family life, whether it's a, a terrible falling out between a parent and a child or, or, or div- divorce and, and names weren't changed in the will, um, terrible injustices were allowed to happen that made no sense at all. Estates, inheritances, and legacies um, were all involved in this. And no matter how, obvious it was, how obvious it was to all the parties involved, to the family to the attorneys, even to the judge, because it was a legally binding will, it was an unchangeable document. The legal term, as I said, is the person's last will and testament. And here in verse 15, Paul is saying that you cannot or add or subtract to a legally binding will. And then he moves on from man-made promises to God's promises in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul is referring to God's promises, His covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. Chapter 12, God promises Abraham that He's going to make him into a great nation, that He will make His name great, and in Him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15, he tells Abraham that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars. Genesis 17, he says that that Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from him. Now, covenant agreements were very common in ancient cultures. They were made between individuals. They were made between tribes. They were made between nations. And there were multiple steps involved to completing the agreement, but one of the most important was the sacrifice of animals to consecrate the covenant. Uh, In this ceremony, the animals were were sacrificed. They were split in half, 
And each covenant maker would then pass between the two halves to signify that they would honor their commitment and their agreement upon the pain of death. Now, this ceremony is acted out between God and Abraham in Genesis 15. And after he uh, has this, this discussion where he, he, he promises to him that uh, he, to Abraham that he will make his, his descendants more numerous than the stars, um, Abraham says, well, how, how do I know that this is going to happen? What's the, what's the sign of this? And God says to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove. In other words, bring me the animals so we can seal and I can give you the sign of the covenant. And then in Genesis uh, 15, 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So notice at this point, Abraham's actually asleep. Uh, the Lord goes on to tell him that he, he, he prophesies basically what's going to happen through uh, the, the, the time with the Israelites in Israel and, and the Exodus. And then fast um, moving forward to Genesis 15 verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So all of the promised land there, God is promising to Abraham. Now notice something very important in this covenant, that Abraham was asleep and that the, the smoking fire pot and the flame, God's presence passed through the animals. And the thing to note about this that's very important is that Abraham was not actually able to participate in this covenant ceremony because he was asleep. And what this signifies is that God is making a unilateral, one-way covenant that God Himself ensures He is going to make sure it, it, it's completed, right? It, it's, it's, it's like we heard uh, just a moment ago from Pastor Tim. It, it's God is the one who's faithful when we are not right? It, it depends on His covenant-keeping faithfulness even when we fail. And this is the heart of the promise in Galatians 3. Paul wants the Galatians, who were mostly Gentile, non-Jewish believers, to understand that they have been in God's plan of redemption from the very beginning, and that they are the people of God already, and that the sign of being the people of God is not, the, is not circumcision, but the Spirit. Paul is tearing down the barriers that the circumcision party are trying to build into Christianity and what it means to be God's people. And, that, and because they're included in God's promises in the covenant with Abraham, there's nothing that the Galatian church, there's nothing that you and I can do that can undo God's plan and God's promise. In Galatians 3.16, 3, it says that the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, who is Christ. Now, our text today is a very important reminder that we need to read the Bible holistically as an integrated story that finds its fulfillment and its crescendo in Jesus. And that's why earlier this year in God's providence, in previous series we did, was this is our story. And that showed us that, that, that we, in a, our personal story, and us as New Life Church, are part of God's cosmic plan of redemption. 
the Galatian church and we at New Life Church are part of God's redemptive story that has find its fulfillment in Jesus and it will be culminated in the restoration of all things. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in God's faithfulness to His ancient promises to Abraham. See, God is not, not human. That means he, He's not fickle, right? And God, God doesn't bow down to political polls or, or, or pressure from His peer group, right? He, he's, he's completely independent. And, and that, that, that reminds me that that character of God was always extolled during our, 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 our elder prayer meetings. Joe Vincent, almost every week, would pray Numbers 2319. Joe would always pray this in faithfulness. He said, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is a faithful God. He is not um, he's not tossed around by what's happening in this crazy world that we're living in right now. now Paul continues his, his argument here with, with very clear language, Galatians 3, verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul closes this movement by using an argument from lesser to greater. If, if a human will is virtually unbreakable, then how much more are God's covenant promises? Not even something as important, as powerful as the law can invalidate God's promises. So God's unbreakable promise next, God's necessary law, the second movement here starting in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, Paul has spent a lot of energy in this letter so far making it crystal clear that we are not justified by keeping the law. He now answers the most obvious question and, t and challenge to his argument. Well, then what's the purpose of the law? Now, it's a question that the Galatian church surely would have been asking. Um, they, they were Gentile believers who would have had hardly any knowledge of Judaism or the law. But verse 19 says that the law was given, it was added because uh, of transgressions. Now, this is important because Paul is, wants us to see how bad sin really is, to see how great a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Romans 4.15 says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 5.20 says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And I, I was having a conversation someone recently uh, uh, about uh, the, the, uh, the idea of the importance of repentance in, in, the, in the life of a Christian, right? That, that's, that, that is a, a foundational um, part of, of what it means to, to be in relationship to God in, in repentance. And, and I, I gave the analogy, and I, I've used this before, that, um, that there's a difference between saying sorry and needing forgiveness, 
And, and, what I, and the analogy that I've given, I've given it to my kids as they were growing up, uh, it, it, that is when, when one of our sons would be having breakfast and w- would spill his milk, it was, it, w- it was an accident. He, he didn't mean to do that. That wasn't a sin, right? And it was, oh, sorry, Dad. Hey, no problem. No big deal. Nothing, nothing to, to really work out there. It's over with. It, it was an accident. But if, if when we had gone away, we had um, told them not to play lightsabers in the living room because you're going to damage mom's brand new birthday present, and we come home and her new giraffe is on the floor uh, decimated, and there are lightsabers all around, there, there, there was intentional damage that was the result of, of disobedience there right, of transgression, right? And there's, that's the difference. Paul is wanting to see us, the seriousness of sin. And this is a very important of Paul's argument for the need for the law. See, there, there's a trend today among influential uh, leaders in, in the evangelical church to say that we need to stop teaching from the Old Testament, right? And what, and what they're saying is that, hey, church attendance is down, young people are not coming anymore, and the problem is because you keep reaching back into the Old Testament and you're talking about all these covenant concepts and these different narratives and these sayings and you're talking about the law and what you're doing is you're turning off young people from the church, right? And here's what I would say to that. I would say that that is a lazy interpretive approach to reading the Bible. I think it's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the Old Testament and the law. There is a greater revelation and understanding that God intends us to have by reading the entire Bible in its proper context. But it's not just lazy. It's also dangerous. See, our first sin is is against a holy God, right? The loving creator of the universe. And until we understand that, we will never understand the suffering and the horror of the cross. How could we if we just see sin as an accident, as spilled milk? And one of the main points that Paul is making here is that the law shows us our desperate need for a Savior and a righteousness that comes from another We've been hearing this this entire series in Galatians. And Tim Keller has a way of making important, um, powerful truths very simple and very easy to understand. In his book, The, the Meaning of Marriage, he, he says this. He says, the, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Oh, the beauty and the power of the gospel. And, and see, the, the, the gospel is not something that we ever graduate from, right? We don't, we don't get the gospel and then move on to uh, bigger and better things, right? We don't move on, we don't move away from the gospel into some, sometimes people want to pit the life of the Spirit and miracles and the miraculous and the supernatural against the gospel as if they're opposed to each other. And that's not true at all. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul is saying, is it not the Spirit who works miracles among you? Right? So, 
we need to, as we heard, continually preach the gospel to ourselves daily and beat it into our heads continuously. And why is that? Because if you're like me, maybe you are, the further that I get away from my conversion and the first time that I trusted in Christ, I am so drawn to performance and, and doing, uh, uh, doing uh, behavior modification and, and not resting in what Jesus has already done. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And that's the power of Galatians 2.20 that Pastor Tim preached a couple weeks ago. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. But we'll never see that if we don't see our need for the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here in his reasoning for why we have the law. Moving to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, he, he continues, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, Paul illustrates the need for the law with two vivid pictures here. The first one is the idea that of a, of a prison, that, that the law has imprisoned everyone under sin. It's a magnifying glass on sin to show how complete our, show our complete and total inability to save or rescue ourselves. And the second is the, this word of, of guardian. And, and the guardian in, in its original usage was like, like a, almost like the, 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 the strict babysitter that would lead uh, young children to and from school. It was to protect them. It was to keep them in line, but it was to lead them. And the purpose of the law here is to is to, in this example, is to lead us to, to life and to Jesus. Paul in, in Romans 7, I don't have time to unpack that, but for homework, read chapter 7, where he, he goes through um, this, this explanation of how he would not have known sin if it weren't for the law. And that's the, the point that he's making in this movement, is that, is that the law is our guardian, it, it, it has, has imprisoned us in, in our ability, in inability to save ourselves in order that we might see our need for a Savior. It, Jesus, remember, is the faithful one who fulfilled the law. Jesus did not come to abolish or do away with the law, but to fulfill it. He says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved, and He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law as the perfect sacrifice. So the law 
has a purpose, but it is a, a necessary good purpose, but it is temporary. The commentator N.T. Wright has a, has a great analogy of, 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 of a, a booster rocket, right? You know, t- today in, in the news, there's all kinds of stories about who's going to be the first billionaire to get to, to space, right? Is it going to be Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson? And they, they all have these, 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 this new thing about space tourism. Uh, when I was a kid, we had the space shuttle, right? And... And, and I remember watching uh, as a kid uh, on TV, it was, it was always a big deal when one of the shuttles would launch. But you could, as you saw the shuttle get further and further up into the atmosphere, you would, you, you would begin to see its booster rockets fall off. And, and, and the shuttle then safely made it in, into orbit. And that, that's the analogy here that Wright's making. As the law is, is important and necessary, but it's, it's like a booster rocket to get us to Christ. So in the first movement, Paul has explained how we become the people of God through His unbreakable promises. In the second movement, Paul has just showed us the, the, that the law was given for a good and limited purpose. In the final movement in Galatians here, starting in verse 25, Paul moves to enlarge his view of the, of the identity of who we are corporately as God's unified family. Verse 25 But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Again, now that Jesus has come, Paul says that the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. And because of faith in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. But there's something larger that Paul begins to connect to the rest of chapter 3, and that's the themes of promise and inheritance. And Paul explains that because Jesus has come and that we're justified by faith, we don't need this guardian anymore. And Paul explains that the result of faith in Jesus Christ is not only are we justified individually, but we have become family and we are heirs of the original promises because we are in Christ Jesus. And as Pastor Tim said in the, in the introduction to this series, that the gospel is not just personal salvation but it, it's cosmic redemption. Right? We're, we're not just saved. It's not just me and Jesus, right? We are saved into a family of faith, into one cosmic, eternal, multi-ethnic, multinational family. And that's why last week when we prayed for Elam Baptist Church, it was so powerful. It's not just New Life Church. We are connected to every Bible-believing, Jesus-professing, gospel-proclaiming church in Louisville and in the world. That is our family. And Paul here in verse 26 is marking out another example of the restoration that comes from the gospel. He uses the, the word uh, that for in Christ Jesus we are all sons. But that is to be understood as sons and daughters. But he uses the the term intentionally to set out and sets out to explain that in the kingdom, daughters who were who in ancient culture could, could rarely inherit property, they now share equally in the inheritance. It's a rhetorical move to elevate the status of women here. And that's, that's what Paul's doing, is that they share equally in the inheritance. Verse 27, 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Being baptized is, is a public declaration of a change of allegiance. Uh, it's a demonstration that you have a new identity that impacts every aspect of your being. What you think, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you say, what you do. And Paul here uses th- this, this idea of, of put on Christ in, in And this new clothing or new wardrobe is one of Paul's favorite metaphors to communicate transformation. Uh, This is what happens when someone has uh, surrendered, has given their life to Jesus Christ. And that will also sound familiar from our our, our What to Wear series, Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul saying, you're in Christ, and this is, this is what it looks like to put on Christ. He now transitions from his explanation about personal identity to corporate identity and what it looks like to be part of God's unified family. Because of who we are in Christ individually, this is also what it looks like to live together. And it's a beautiful and powerful reminder that we desperately need today. Galatians 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul here in verse 28 is giving three common examples that were very divisive in Paul's day. And they are just as divisive in our day. Neither Jew nor Greek. In the church there is to be no ethnic or racial divisions. Neither slave nor free. There is to be no separation or judgment or division based on economic or social status. And in the church, there is to be no division, no second-class citizenship based on your gender. Tim Keller, again, notes that the gospel means that we are Christians before we are anything else. And we've, I've said this, many of us have said this from the pulpit over the, over the past year, that many times in the last uh, year, year and a half, our unity has been exposed as to be something other than Jesus Christ. And when that happens, that is a very shaky, dangerous place to be. In every one of these areas, there are forces at work that seek to pit people against each other. The pain in our culture related to racial, in, racial injustice and reconciliation, the frustration and stress that is impacting our economy at this present moment, and the growing confusion and hostility related to gender and sexuality issues. And in all of these areas, people are being overwhelmed. There is so much hostility and anger and agenda that is out there that is happening right now that now more than ever that we need to know that we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
and that the barriers that separate people in, in the world into warring factions, we need to understand that if we're in Christ, those walls have already come down. The hostility should be dead. Ephesians 2.14 says, this is Paul saying, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul's primary focus here is the life of the body of God's family. And he's bringing clarity and understanding to the Galatian church that the gospel has radical implications for life in God's family. We're not supposed to be like the world. Okay? Our unity in Christ means that there's to be no division between races, social classes, or genders in the church. While at the same time recognizing the reality of the distinctions that make us different. See, New Life has a lot of different races, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different nationalities that are represented here at New Life Church. And that means that, that the, the unity that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3, in Ephesians, it does not mean uniformity. And when we understand that, that will help us to build relationships with brothers and sisters who are different than us, they look different than us, they have a different life experience, and that will help us begin to, to, to reach out and build relationships. One, one of the conversations that I had about a year ago when um, there, there was just a lot of, of pain, a lot of sadness in, in, in the culture related to, to racial trauma and racial injustice, and, and there, were, there was a lot happening, and, and a lot of conversations were happening in the church, and we were, we were heading into our, our class on Wednesday nights in August. It, it was called Indivisible. It was biblical conversations about race. And, and, and I was, as I was talking to uh, a, a lady here, uh, African-American lady, she was recounting to me a conversation that she'd had where, where someone had told her not meaning anything by it, actually uh, attempting to help, she said, I, I don't even see you as black. And, and the lady who was re 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 recounting that story to me, she says, well, I, Kevin, I, I wonder, what else don't they see about me? See, unity does not mean uniformity. And that means that we are called to build relationships. I was listening recently to a, a fascinating discussion um, called Race, the Bible, and, and the Christian Life. And, and one of the, one of the, the, the speakers in, in this, this dialogue was Dr. Anthony Bradley. And he, he's an African-American author. He, he's a professor of religion and theology and ethics at the King's College in New York City. New York City. And the, the moderator had asked him a question. Well, how, how do we move forward in, in the church in, in terms of racial, racial reconciliation? And he, he had a great point. 
He said that he believes that the secret weapon in the church's arsenal related to racial healing and racial reconciliation is the secret weapon of hospitality. It's breaking bread together. See, he made the point that it's hard to be mad at someone if you're, if you're eating chocolate together. <laughs> right? It's hard to be mad if you're having pizza, barbecue, whatever it is. And unity can't happen without intimate and trusted relationships. And he makes the point that, that unity, building those relationships is messy, but it's worth it. The last 18 months have been one of the most divisive periods and generations, and um, we, we've dealt with that in, in the church. And, 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 but God has, has a lot to say about, uh, about unity, and God blesses unity wherever He can find it. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life ever forevermore. See, church, the Lord will not command His blessing when we try to unify around other things when we try to unify, as we heard earlier in Galatians, about other Gospels. And, and we can even be unifying around good things, Christian things that are dividing us, doctrine, theology. Even the Bible itself can become an idol. And Paul is drawing a line in the sand that the things that the world uses to divide have no place in the church. And we need to look for ways to build unity in the church and tear down the walls that are based on these distinctions. But I tell you, one of the, the most beautiful and encouraging examples of what Paul's talking about here, about being one in Christ, is in our young people. See, the, the last few weeks have been an amazing uh, time with the New Life Church family and our, and our young ones. And we saw it strongly a couple of weeks ago at VBS. Um, I was back watching the closing ceremonies at VBS and just this, this, this joy, this unity that just almost brought me to tears. And I said, this is what's going to take down the devil. This kind of joy, this purity, this unity that these kids have, this is what's going to take down the kingdom of darkness. We saw it, excuse me, on the youth trip to Delaware. And then more fully and more personally for me at summer camp this past week. At summer camp, we saw kids from different races, different, different nationalities, different languages were spoken. These kids had different economic backgrounds, different family structures, and these kids were laughing and playing and encouraging each other. They didn't need to think about it. They didn't need to think about, are we being unified? They just were. It just flowed out of who they were in their common purpose to focus on Jesus Christ. 
and man, you want to have some, some fun, go do the church clap dance with these kids. Whoever got me on that video on Facebook, you need to take that down. Because I'm out of rhythm. I, and I think I feel my back out. But, <laughs> but kids, kids have so much to teach us about unity. If we could just learn like kids. Mm. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All of the promises to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we by default are heirs of the promise. That is our spiritual heritage. As we move to a close and, and speaking of, of spiritual heritage, um, so as, we're working right now, as you guys know, on a, on a massive celebration coming in October to celebrate New Life Church's 40th anniversary. And, and one, one of the projects that we're working on that we're going to debut at that event is we are working on a, a documentary, a little documentary film. And, and Alan and I are, are going around and we're, we're scheduling interviews with, uh, with, with people who were there in the beginning and we're going to be working our way through the timeline to get to our current day. But I, I tell you, when I, I hear these stories, when I hear the, 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 the challenges and the battles that these families and these individuals were going through to get New Life Church off the ground, trusting in God's promise, that is just a, a wonderful demonstration of the spiritual heritage that we have here at New Life Church as an example of what Paul's talking about here in verse 29. And when I hear about the origins of New Life Church and the faithfulness of Pastor Carol and Miss Debbie and the Hyde's family and the Brizendines and the Prices and the Singletons and Miss Joan Asphalt and Miss Robin Pearson and the Reeds, the Talbots and the Elsians and the Yeomans, and I could go on and on and on of multiple generations of faithfulness. And you realize that we are standing on the shoulders of giants and we're standing on the strength of God's promises and God's faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. We are sons and daughters, heirs of the inheritance because God keeps His promises. God is a promise keeper. He is true to His character. He is faithful to His word. And because God is faithful to His promises, we have been adopted into His eternal family. We become the people of God through trusting the promises of God.